and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. The keener-eared among you will have noticed that I am not David Ward. My name is Emma Black and I'm absolutely thrilled to be guest editing this episode of OperaCast. I'm aware I have very big shoes to fill. Joining me this month is the composer and conductor Michael Betteridge. Michael, I feel you and I only ever meet online these days. How are you? I'm not bad. I'm not bad. Yeah, busy as ever, but doing some great stuff. And it's great to be on the podcast again. Lovely to have you here. And my other guest this week is the soprano Lorna James. Lorna, how are you? I am all right. Thank you very much. Yes, running after my twin toddlers by day and occasionally fitting in some uh, some opera by night, maybe. But yeah, very, very happy to be back uh, on the OperaCast podcast. Lovely. It's lovely to have you both here. Thank you so much for coming on this journey with me. Lots to discuss this episode, so let's dive straight in, starting with the recent budget announcement from the government. Hooray! So in amongst <laughs> all the chat, <laughs> in amongst all the chat about pensions and childcare, there was some good news for arts organisations. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has given UK theatres, orchestras and museums a financial boost with a budget that extends tax reliefs for cultural organisations. So the Treasury has doubled the rate of reliefs for productions and exhibitions. They did this about 18 months ago. It was meant to stop next month. It's now been extended for another two years. And this is, we're still living in a post-corona, mid-corona world. So this is um, basically to help with uh, operational costs because many organisations, and now I'm preaching to the converted here, are still struggling with funding cuts, higher expenses, and our favourite friend, the cost of living crisis. Lorna, I'm feeling cautiously optimistic about this. Do you feel the same? Obviously, it's as far as um, a gesture is concerned, it's very welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, I I feel my, my concern perhaps is that it's a, a, a sticking plaster on a gaping wound. I think oh, the yeah. arts have been, as we all know, again preaching to the converted, are chronically underfunded in this country. And I and I whilst it is a welcome, obviously any money is welcome, and anything that. Um, at least in name, seems to be prioritising the arts is also welcome. Mm. I wonder how much of a, a practical difference it will make. Yes. The, is um... that overly cynical, perhaps? I, don't... <laughs> <laughs> I think we can I'm... all afford to be a little cynical. Yes, Michael. I was going to say, I'm with you. I think it's it's a gesture, isn't it? In a time when yeah. we are... Covid, you know, absolutely decimated our industry, and then in many ways, and we've worked so hard to keep it going. Um, all the recent cuts, mm-hmm. as well, yeah, and the recent BBC news, which we know we're getting on to today. We'll but to it, yeah. yeah, it just feels like, yeah, a gesture. And I think my belief is we are a wealthy country. There is this rhetoric around, oh, we don't have a lot of money, but you know, per capita, we are a wealthy country, and yeah. um, you know. The government do have a lot of power over what's taxed and how we tax and who we tax and who that money goes towards. I, I don't know the ins and outs theatre tax release as much as perhaps I should or ought to. I do wonder, it's more of a provocation than a kind of statement, that does that incentivize um, productions more that are more commercial? 
because there is something around, you know, there's relief, but also, which will make a difference across the board, whether there's public funding or not. But does that also just kind of celebrate and push for work that is commercial and that doesn't actually perhaps really delve into, you know, mm. working with communities and the kind of work that's really important as part of the ecosystem? Um, that's more kind of, yeah, a thought. What does it do to say, we'll take money, we'll make you save money rather than actually giving organisations that need it money. It's, it's a, I guess it's a conservative rhetoric, you know, people look after themselves, they create businesses and do what they will do. But um, yeah, that's my thought. And actually, I saw a quote from someone quite high up, potentially even the chief exec of the ISM, which is the Incorporated Society of Musicians, who I'm massively paraphrasing her here, but she said, this is all very well and good, but what about music education? And that's sort of a, a drum I want to bang all the live long day is yes, but what about music education? So I thought she was definitely, that That seemed a very fitting response as well. Um, also the progression of the arts as well. You know, it's a, especially opera is, is an art form which is doing such wonderful things to progress itself and mm. um, work in a world in which it was not forged and um, succeed in that world. But the only way it does that is by championing new composers, um, mm -hmm. you know, diversity and difference and putting women and people of color front and center. And if, as Michael says, these kind of initiatives, you know, take us back to let's just, you know, do 79 Carmens every season, you know, it. You know, that is lost that progress is lost right you need to actively support that because you believe in the greater benefits of that kind of um uh investment it's not it, that's exactly mm. it it's not investment they're not investing in the arts here yeah they're, it's, yeah it's a it's a you know a, um a doff of the cap in in vaguely the right direction so that they can't be seen to not be doing that i don't know there's my cynical hat again so it's not nothing but it's not lots is that maybe what we planned on something. it's not something it's Great. not nothing but it's not something <laughs> but it's not something moving on to nicer news i always love discussing these uh, it, we are in the season of season announcements so i know that david discussed the welsh and the glyndebourne season announcement on last episode uh this time around we get to discuss lovely opera north so opera north have announced their 2023 to 2024 season including Revivals of Cosi Van Tutti, Albert Herring and Cavalleria Rusticana, as well as new productions of Falstaff, Purcell's The Mask of Might and La Rondonnet. So those last three new productions are being titled The Green Season. So this will be Opera North's first full sustainable season in an ambitious and progressive programme guided by the Theatre Green Book and underlining its commitment to sustainability. They released a press release saying that all three of these operas will share scenic elements to create interlinked yet distinctive designs and enabling Opera North to reduce its use of materials and all sets, props and costumes will be sourced from previous productions or purchased secondhand. And then continuing on the green theme, I find this fascinating. They've also put on more matinee performances so that audiences can get there more easily on public transport. Now, we've all worked at Opera North at various points in our career, so I'm aware we are using a slightly biased, biased discussion here, <laughs> but what do we think of this season announcement? Is this the future 
aside from the sustainable season, is there anything else that grabs us from these this announcement of these operas? I just got very excited about Albert Herring. That's why. I'm <laughs> I <know. excited>. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we all? I missed it last time round, so I'm really. It was excited so about... good. It was so good. I think there's also that thing about putting it in the Howard Assembly Rooms, uh, and as I understand it, it was in the round. It's, yeah. They used it kind of in the round, and again, that you know, we always talk about this. You know, I know we're all, all of a similar mindset when it comes to opera in terms of accessibility and where opera can be placed and the intimacy. And it's an it's a very English opera, which is you know, lots, lots of kind of conversations can happen around that. I think it's actually a really great way into it. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, the Mask of Might sounds fascinating and I'm really curious mm. where that goes. Um, but I always think as a creative, the idea that if you put parameters on your work, you're going to have to find creative solutions. And in terms of the climate emergency we're in, we should always constantly thinking about, right, well, what can we do to reduce our carbon footprint? Of course, this doesn't go as far as kind of perhaps some things could, but we are creating art. You know, it's the duty of governments and to put in some legislation and to work mm. hard at that. But it just draws attention to these conversations we need to be having. And I can imagine that actually the parameters that are set as part of thinking about reusing sets, recycling stuff that's in the costumes and set that's in the um, in the warehouses, that's going to produce a really exciting kind of mm. new ways of creating, and I can't can't wait for it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's um, Opera North have some uh, uh, history of, of doing this kind of thing, so I can um, is it not such quiet girls? Is that what it was called? That was a sustainable production. Um, and the Alcina also... that they did was yeah Alcina I think um I talk about this more in my interview with George Johnson Lee which is coming out um Alcina was sort of a test run they to see if they could uh -huh, do yeah. do a mainstay show because not such quiet girls uh was in the Howard assembly room and then they tried it yeah. with Alcina which was a mainstage production and a touring production and then that kind of gave them the the knowledge and also potentially the confidence to go let's see if we can do this for a full season yeah, and then also what they will, I'm sure, be doing to echo Michael's point about finding creative solutions. I'm putting in mind of the um, Six Little Grapes season that mm -hmm. we had a few years back, which did a lot of sharing mm. between productions in a really interesting creative way. Because if you, as was kind of designed, if as an audience member you went to all six, Mm. at various different points you can kind of look at the scene of one and go hang on isn't that the grandfather clock from Enfance mm. in the in this in the um the set for Pagliacci for example or you know so I think that is going to be really exciting I think it's a really bold move I think it is um to echo some of our conversations about arts funding in the country <laughs> I think it is more than a gesture I think it's I think it's Opera North putting their money where their mouth is and going actually we do believe in this within the constraints of the industry in which we work and um, other constraints that will be happening behind the scenes that we are not aware of. I think they're mm. making some really bold choices and I really hope it pays off for them. Absolutely. Um, I'm reminded, of, as you said, with the Little Greats, that yes, there were scenic elements throughout and I almost felt we should have given audience like bingo cards to like, have you spotted? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> or like, I spy books. And whether maybe oh like, gosh, we could, yeah, su we could suggest the powers of the Opera North that they should do that for their green season as well, I'm sure. Yeah. I know I, I, um, I know a few details, but I, I cannot say anything. Um, but I know the designer, Leslie Travers, who's designing all three, 
And there's definitely one quite large, he was definitely planning one quite large set piece that he's using in at least two, potentially all three of the operas. Great. Um, so I mean, we'll look totally forward to that person. in the autumn. Oh, he's totally the person. We love Leslie. Yeah. Carroll. Leslie's totally the person to get on board for that because um, he's an actual genius. So um, <laughs> that, yeah, that's exciting. There's lots of lovely stuff. And like Michael, I'm excited about the Albert Herring. I'm excited to see mm. that this time around because I also missed it last time. Um, and some lovely names in there as well. So they, in amongst yeah. all of this, you know, there's going to be some amazing top-notch singing and that is yeah. just a joy as well. And then... I always love to see that Cosi Van Tutti revival because that production, which is a Chernobyl production, was the first opera I ever saw when it was new in 2004. So I always love to kind of it? see it. And it was that it production. Was. And it was that production. It's, a it's beautiful, set. beautiful, it's a beautiful, beautiful production. production. Um, so yeah, always always makes me smile that that's still that's still knocking around. Yeah, it's a nice one. It's a nice one. It's one of the first um, <clears throat> the first ones because I covered on it the last time round or the time before, and I distinctly remember that being one of the ones where I was like oh I'd really love a crack at this you know like I think it's <laughs> when you're covering when you're when you're covering a role you either think I'm okay if I don't go on for this one it's a bit too complicated or it's a bit too you whatever it is you know going on would be quite stressful and uh because he was just such a beautiful production I thought yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't mind going on in this one and now some award news the Olivier nominations were announced earlier this month so for best new opera production we have Alcina um, at the Royal Opera House, Least Like the Other, uh, which is co-production between Irish National Opera and the Royal Opera House, Peter Grimes at the Royal Opera House, I'm sensing a theme here, and then Sybil at Barbican Theatre. And then for Outstanding Achievement in Opera, we have three nominees. We have Sinead Campbell-Wallace for her performance in Tosca at ENO, William Kentridge for his conception and direction of Sybil at Barbican Theatre, and Anthony McDonald for his design of Alcina at the Royal Opera House. I feel, based purely on reviews and word of mouth, the smart money for new opera production is probably on Peter Grimes, which was directed by Deborah Warner, and to all accounts was just incredible. I looked at getting a ticket and I'd completely missed my moment and I could either spent £9 to sit on the roof and see nothing or money I just will never earn in my lifetime to sit in the stalls. <laughs> so I chose not. Uh, so that's the Olivier's are being held on April the 2nd. Um, I had the privilege of attending last year and I can say it's a lot of fun. And then the, the, the show will be on ITV afterwards. Um, it's always fun to kind of see what's been, what's been happening in the theatrical year as well as in opera. Also, the Royal Philharmonic Society Awards were held earlier this month with Theatre of Sound and Opera Ventures winning the Opera and Music Theatre Award for Bluebeard's Castle, which starred Gerald Finley and Susan Bullock. Uh, also, Martin Brabins, who's ENO's music director, won the Conductor Award. Uh, here at OperaCast, we have a fellow nominee who I believe was there on the night. Michael, can you please tell us what you were nominated for um, and how the evening was? So I was nominated as part of a digital opera called Opera Tick. Uh, which was produced by Second Movement and Tourette's Action. Uh, a really, really phenomenal project to be part of that we, me and 15 people living with Tourette's Syndrome across the UK, created the Digital Opera, having never met each other. We only only met um, Andy, who was one of the kind of key collaborators uh, at the RPS Awards. Like that was almost a year and a half after we finished it. So that was quite a moment there. 
it was a really beautiful evening. It was a really mm. beautiful evening because, you know, we, our industry has been through so much, is going through so much. Um, mm. And, you know, we have worked hard as a sector over the last kind of 10 years or more with austerity, you know, to ensure we are reaching as many people as possible. That is such a challenge when, as we talked about already today, and these are conversations that come up a lot on this podcast, but, you know, when you cut music education and when you're not offering those opportunities, there's not the talent pipeline in order to, you know, push people into universities and music, music colleges. So we, we don't see that diversity, but in terms of the RPS awards, you sat there and you went, this industry is doing something amazing, celebrating all different walks of life from the, the amateur orchestra in Torbay through to internationally acclaimed performers and mm. you know new ensembles like Manchester Collective. Um, so it was a gorgeous evening and really lovely to catch up with lots of different people in the sector um, and celebrate everything that we do. Uh, I had one too many wines, it must be said. I definitely enjoyed myself. Can you believe it? <laughs> um, and I gather there was quite an incredible kind of call to arms. Someone gave a speech. Yeah, John Kilhooley's speech really set the tone for the evening in terms mm. of, you know, we need to fight back. We don't, we shouldn't be apologetic. It's mm. really, I think it's really easy um, if you're not part of our world um, just because I think of this country, sometimes this relationship with classical music, you know, we're a country of thespians, we have Shakespeare, but our music mm. heritage, we are working on, we are building, and there's still a lot to celebrate. That's my take on it anyway, but we shouldn't apologise, you know, everyone in this room, we've done main stage stuff, but we also do so much learning and participation and bringing those two worlds together. And we must continue shouting about it because we know our work is valuable. So, yeah, John's speech was fiery and brilliant. Mm. If you haven't read it, listeners, uh, go and listen, read read it. Go and read it. It's on the, the RPS website. It's, yeah, really inspiring. Fabulous. Thank you. So when David asked if I would guest edit this episode, uh, we discussed who I might want to interview and if there was any strand of the opera process that Opera Pass hadn't yet touched on. And my immediate thought was that we hear lots from singers, directors, conductors, and composers, but I don't think we've ever had a designer on. So it was my very great pleasure to have been able to interview the designer, George Johnson Lee, a few weeks ago to talk all about opera and design. And here is my chat with George. Hello, George. Welcome to OperaCast. Thank you so much for um, agreeing to this interview. Uh, we, You and I met at Opera North in 2017, which feels like a thousand years ago now. Um, and you, we did a project together where you were the associate set designer, is that right? And I was one of the assistant directors. Um, and I wanted to invite you onto OperaCast today just to talk about what is a designer and kind of get some insight into your world and your work. First of all, could you just quickly just introduce yourself? I trained as a uh, set costume and lighting designer um, at the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts. Um, I, within that, I then specialised in set and lighting design um, and with a particular interest in opera. And I always knew I wanted to go and design um, for opera and end up in that, that world. Um, so since graduating, I then went on to uh, assist and associate various designers and work with different companies as both as a freelance designer and through being an assistant and associate. And, but my most recent 
kind of development is that I've moved over to the production management side. So I now work with designers to re- help realise their their um, visions. Uh, so first of all, very um, kind of man on the street question, someone who's never maybe even set foot in an opera house before. What does a designer do? Um, and could you maybe talk us through the process uh, the designing process of making a show kind of from initial ideas to opening night yeah um I mean what I will say to mm. start with is that this is it's very much what I'll talk about is my process yeah, of course yes and everybody's process yes. is different and <laughs> I think every I think creative, really, every really creative says that it's like this is yeah. just me but yes no absolutely what is yeah your, and it's, your but it's really important to identify because it's it helps establish the fact that anybody can you know, there's a way, there's a route into it for anyone. Um, but from my from my practice, um, I one of the reasons why I wanted to end up in opera is because I adore music, and music is my way into storytelling. Um, and I think opera is so successful in that. In that, although sometimes there's language barriers, the music is what enables all of us to understand the story, whether we can understand the language directly or not so that's that's always my starting point as a designer so I will either listen to the well listen to the music to begin with then I'm always quite keen to receive a copy of the score yes very good yes (laughs) um others might not be it might not be useful to to many but for me it always is because then I can sit down particularly from a lighting point of view that is so reliant Mm. on the kind of pacing and beat of the music I can sit down and go through that score whilst listening to the music and it's again it's it's like reading the script it's the way into the piece um once i then have a personal understanding of of that piece will i'll then reach out and extend that conversation to involve the director and we will then start bouncing ideas off each other and ensure that you know identify what we agree about and what we don't agree about and that's that's a really important thing is that you know part of that the collaboration and creation process is is bouncing those agreements and and thoughts and things off each other yeah. and trying to find that that common ground and establish a, a language between the two the yes, two people absolutely. about a piece um so once that's occurred it's then it becomes quite a practical job mm. where I would sit down and make start modeling. So every design we build a scale model, which is a uh, normally one to twenty five, which means it's twenty five times smaller than the real yeah. thing will end up. Um, so they're quite small, yes. little, but they're beautiful. beautiful. They're always beautiful. Um, <laughs> always beautiful. Hopefully, um, and what this means is that then there is a physical a physical tool to work with to demonstrate what's in my head to the director and vice versa for the director to then feed feedback. Um, this will eventually, you know, it will be a process and it will develop until it lands on a point where we have what is called a white card. And it's this white card, which is a, a, a quite an established shape of a design, not necessarily finished. Uh, sometimes there'll be kind of black and white or um like a suggestion of texture on it, but by no means, you know, a finished article. And it's this that will then, a company will see to get an idea of the concept and, you know, 
the, the management at the company and the producers will then feedback their thoughts and ideas and whether they like where the piece has yeah. gone and what the design and show is looking like. Once that's all agreed, it then progresses more and we end up with a final model, which is an exact mini version of what we what we will see on stage. And I say exact in the way that it's an exact starting yes. point. <laughs> and again, that is something that for me is really keen is that there is still a rehearsal process to yeah. go through. So the design can be there as a starting point. And it is a starting, it is established in the way that, you know, the set will be built before rehearsals begin. The set will be in budget before rehearsals begin. The set will be painted before rehearsals begin. But there will always be development that then still happens between that when rehearsals start and when it opens. Yeah. And that's for me is the really exciting point because you know, you then have people working with it and you have people wearing the costumes yeah. and people and it's another, using the props. It's and, another layer of collaboration, isn't it? Kind of the more people yeah, you involve. Exactly. Um I always find it amazing, kind of uh, especially in my role where I am an assistant director, where I kind of will have a meeting with a director and the piece has already been designed maybe six months, maybe even a year prior. And it's like and it yeah. looks like this and it's being built. And then on day one when sometimes you meet the singers for the very first time, you then tell them what the show is already going to look like. And some singers, I think, absolutely love that. kind of know and then can really kind of bounce off that. And some singers, yeah. I think it is an adjustment to kind of be told, and this is your character. Yeah, absolutely. Because this process is mirrored by everybody involved in, in quite a different mm. way of, you know, I might spend a year designing a show with a, in collaboration with a yeah. director a singer might have also spent learning. a year perfecting exactly. that role and learning the music. Yeah. And so there's that, in, on day one, there has to be that mutual uh, kind of respect. Yeah, absolutely. That and tr- and this, trust as well. This has to yes. develop. Yeah, yeah exactly. But I, yeah, it's, but I always, I love, like, whenever the model, whenever I see any models, um, I think it's just kind of, <laughs> I never had a doll's house growing up, so maybe it's like some kind of... <laughs> like repressed repressed well, yeah, trauma. You you t- you touched on there that there might be different types of design and I think we've mainly been focusing on talking about set is that your preferred is that your preferred kind of strand of designing? Yes, I mean it's what is kind of usual is that you will have on a production a set and costume designer and a separate lighting designer yep. um or separate designers for all mm. three. Where I differ slightly is that my preference was always set first, then very closely lighting second and costume third. And my reasoning for that is that I, the way I think um, is very kind of spatially and very atmospherically first. And the people who, who bring the world to life and, you know, they're the most kind of important people in that world because they do bring it to life but they it for me it was always I always had to establish the space and atmosphere first before being able to place the people in it to to bring that life um whereas other people it's it's an entire you know it's an encompassing space and people directly go hand in hand but it's just my you know my brain works slightly differently with the with my starting point so I I needed that space and to know what the atmosphere felt like, yeah. I think more so because that informed what the people then feel like. Absolutely. 
So yeah. and I think especially when you get to technical rehearsals I mean there are these some some people that you say that do set and costume and lighting and possibly even some video as well and they kind of mm, if you just have yeah. one person having to look after potentially four strands of quite a complicated technical process I always I'm always I think they're superhuman um, and I tip my hat to all of them but I do think there is something rather brilliant about having the design process slightly split out so you have different mm. people looking after different aspects of it Back in 2017, when we met, uh, you entered as a designer alongside the fabulous director, Carolina Sofulak, the Opera Award, which for people who don't know, yes. is a directing and designing award that comes around every, every two years. You have to be 35 and under <laughs> and uh, to be relatively starting out in your career. Um, and that mm. year... It would the prize was the the winners sorry, uh would win the opportunity to design Manon Lescaut at Opera Holland Park and George I do believe that you and Carolina won this award what was that like? Um, it was a bit of a whirlwind <laughs> looking back on it, um but an absolutely amazing yes. experience for both of us and for both, uh, kind of individually career wise but also. For both of us together in the way that we it really cemented our working relationship and you know we went on to do productions afterwards as well um but that what was interesting about that process is it was it was quite unlike any other process in the way that it was because of the format of of it being a competition yeah. and a, a prize being the production at the end it was all slightly reversed in that it was designed before any involvement from a producer yes. or a company yeah. so and with that you know no involvement of production manager talking about budgets <laughs> yeah. or anything like that so, so it like was kind of dream it was dream kind designing. of it was quite yeah it was quite which was quite thrilling yeah. and you know we had the of the technical specification of the venue which outlines what you can and can't do in mm. space um so you know it was designed with all of that in mind but it was so thrilling to just think right well what you know if, if there's no there's no budget no limits <laughs> so what can yeah. we do and you know we we designed what we did and and they liked it and chose it and you know we won the prize and got to stage that production yeah. and then it became af- after that process had happened and that we'd got that job and we'd won that prize it then it was like right we're now doing we now need to do this job <laughs> you know in reality yeah. and and kind of fast track the bit of the process of going right this is the design you know it's it, is it on budget what do we need to change about it what practically yeah. doesn't quite work and um but it was yeah like I say it was it was thrilling yeah. it really was um and I unfortunately didn't get a chance to see it because I had just had my baby, so I was slightly busy. Yeah. Um, but I saw really <laughs> beautiful production photos. It was set in the sixties, wasn't it? Yes, it was, and it was it it was wacky <laughs> and it was brilliant, and it was you know there's there's no kind of um, pretending it wasn't because it was designed. It was the whole concept was designed to be yeah. wacky and to take what is a really tricky piece and because it oh, is a, it's a, it's it's a, very, a very difficult, difficult piece, piece in the way absolutely. that it both structurally in the way it it portrays certain yeah, characters in absolutely. the piece so to take its 
the idea was to take its weaknesses and make mm. its weaknesses its strengths. Right. And yeah, it was it was it was mad <laughs> in the best way possible. And it, it looked, you know, it was exciting and had some brilliant sixties dancing. <laughs> and then another thing I would like to ask you is is there you said that you you've found quite early on that opera was the thing for you similar thing happened to me as well I decided it was opera or bust um but I know you have designed other art forms and is there a is there any difference between mm. designing opera and and other things or is it kind of it's all it's all art and it's all in a theatre so actually the kind of they're more alike than they are different um the main difference I found was the well, there were two main differences. So one is the timescales involved. Mm, yes. So in opera, the timescales are much yeah. longer. And both the actual time to pair the design and the time in advance that that starts mm. is, on the projects I worked on, was vastly different to the theatre. It was all um, a lot quicker in, in the kind of play and um, theatre mm. world. Um, and the second difference is there are because of the scale of opera and it is generally you know still performed in the rep model of um a different show every night sure. to any enable singers you know voice recovery there there has to be more people and more infrastructure to facilitate all of that happening so the thing that springs into my mind is that in theatre when it came to the kind of prop side of mm. things i was I would be working with stage management a lot on props and the ASMs would be quite heavily involved in, in propping yeah. and sourcing the show. In opera, that's very different in that there will be, there will always be a kind of running props yeah. who look after the show when it's on stage and a sourcing and prop supervisor department. And, you know, obviously stage management are still highly mm. involved in it to to run the show, but they, you know, they, um, they have so many more people to deal with because of the size of choruses exactly. and casts yeah. and singers that, you know, they wouldn't uh, generally be sourcing props and, and working on it in a way that a, a play with, uh, you know, five people yes. in yeah. an ASM would be doing. And and I um, guess so, to generalise, and please correct me if I'm wrong, your budget in opera might be slightly bigger than, than in the theatre or would you find it's kind of much of a muchness? Um. No, generally it is, but again, it's it's balanced by the fact that there were more people. There were generally more people that that money it's has to be spread across, yeah. uh, kind of pay for. Um, so both, for example, from a costume point of view, you know that if if you have a chorus opera where there's a minimum of thirty five people plus the principal singers yeah. on stage, so you know, let's say forty five people as, yeah. a, as a figure to make your costume budget that then is. About. Yeah. Yeah. You then, you know, that obviously requires more money to have clothes for all of those people. Yes. <laughs> um so generally yeah, you know, the budgets on paper are healthier. Yeah. But, but practically they have to equally go go, go a long way. And um yeah, and, and generally the the because of this rep model sets sets are built to last a lot longer because you know opera has a culture of revivals exactly. more than theatre yeah. does so most you know if a if a production is successful it will be stored and it will be revived potentially for you know 
20, 20 years, let's say. Yes. So the actual set itself is built to last 20, 20 years. years. Yes. Um, yeah. I think the, um, the Bohem that was at Covent Garden that I think retired about five years ago was potentially 40 years old. It was, yeah. I mean, it was beautiful. I, I saw it. It was beautiful, um, very class, very yeah. classic, which is probably why it had you know survived so many revivals. Mm. Um, but yes, but that does feel amazing that you kind of, I was watching something in the mid 2010s yeah, that was made in the 70s is yeah. that is that's amazing mm. i mean in our in our previous season that we've well that's on tour mm. at the moment um the cunning little yes. vixen uh that was first done you know in the, in the early 80s that's about 40 wow. years old and it's you know it's it's such, such a classic and loved production yeah. that it's still it still stands the test exactly. of time now so you are now um permanently at Opera North wearing a slightly different hat but still in the design world yes um can you talk to us about your I want to say your new role but you've been doing it for a few years now uh yes so I started in October 21 so I've been there about about 18 months and your job title is uh so my job title is assistant production manager um within the production department at, at Opera North and what that means is so as a production manager, I now work with the designers and directors and, you know, other members of creative team um, to take these beautiful little models that we've spoken about previously and <laughs> make them or turn them from being a beautiful little thing to being a beautiful, big, real life thing. Um, so now on the other side of... of the kind of design process is mm-hmm. when we so the director and designer will present this concept and and you know the producers and management and us will look at the design and say um you know yes yes and no and then practically as production managers we will uh go through the design with a fine tooth comb and say yes that will work yes that won't you know yes we can afford mm-hmm. that no we can't afford that no, can't. <laughs> um, but you know there is there is still an extremely creative aspect of it is and it's this is yeah. what this is the bit of the design process that I would enjoy I always enjoyed which is why I now love my new job because it's about looking at something that you might not be able to do and working out a way to do it yeah, and that is problem solving yeah and it's so exciting to be able to do that and even mm. um you know, even if it is, let's say, a money thing where you can't afford to do mm. the original version of an idea, mm. the parameters that that provides to work out a way to achieve, you know, a similar a similar outcome in different ways is mm. so exciting. And I get to work with, you know, incredibly talented um, scenery builders and scenic painters and prop mm. makers and, and yeah. all of these, you know, amazing teams who bring the skills that they bring to to um create all of this beautiful beautiful scenery and props and lighting and costume and all the design yeah. elements of it no they are i mean i'm very biased because i've worked with them lots as I know you. <laughs> yeah. they're all very good and they're all very talented yeah. um so now um coming up at opera north in the autumn season it's just been announced is um it's what's is it being called the sustainable season is yes that right? yeah 
or the green season. Um, can so, you tell us the green yeah. season? <laughs> can you tell? And, and I feel that really does pertain to the design aspect of these the three operas that make up the autumn season. Yeah. Um, I know Leslie Travers is designing is designing all three. Yeah. Can you? Is there anything you can tell us in advance, um, or kind of what the ethos behind it is? Have you, I imagine you've probably all been raiding the prop stores and the scene, the scenery stores, trying to help bring Leslie's vision to life. So with this with this season, it's not just a production; it's three three new shows. Um, the idea is that everything, all scenic elements, well, actually scenic, scenery and props and costume, but um, I'm not that involved in the costume side of it because we have a you know a, <laughs> yeah. a separate costume department. Costume department, yeah. Um, so but from a scenery and props point of view we the idea is we are building everything in the design out of either recycled material um or secondhand material and local so there's kind of three um pillars that we're working to and Ooh. all of this is guided by something called the theater green book which is a relatively new publication of guidelines as to how theatre can start to work more sustainably and um it's kind of a, mm. a big flow chart of you know how to approach this <laughs> this process yeah. um in this new in this new way uh so with the design process for this season it's it's altered the sustainable factor has altered the design process slightly in that we we have a, a scenery stores which involves our kind of live repertoire of shows about 40 shows roughly and as part of this process it was um they were went through and you know the ones that weren't necessarily going to be done again or have been done you know quite a lot and are now not in the best state um mm. it was decided that all of the scenery that will no longer be used is up for grabs to be recycled into <gasps> into new scenery so Fantastic whether that be directly things, you know, in their current form or mm-hmm. that we, they provide a, a stock of raw materials basically to then build, you know, this new, Brilliant. this new design out of, which is the route it's ended up going slightly more is that we have stripped, you know, all the components from this scenery, which is no longer going to be used. So we, we have, you know, a stock of, recycled wood a stock of recycled steel a stock of recycled kind of hardware like wheels and brakes and you know all this all the other bits that it requires so there is then for the bits we don't have because you know we that is it's still although it's a brilliant store of stuff it's still it is limited um anything else has come from or is coming from leeds-based or yorkshire-based uh suppliers which deal in secondhand goods Fantastic. and secondhand materials, um, using local people and using uh, kind of crafts people that we haven't, or like we have used before, but ne- aren't necessarily theatre um, specific. Mm. And using this as an opportunity to kind of involve people who might not necessarily always be have been involved in building theatre before and helping Mm. you know using our knowledge and expertise to inform and um kind of enhance other people's uh, skill sets as well so it's really exciting 
incredibly exciting. It sounds amazing. <laughs> yes. It is. And it's um the actual outcome is, is going to be really really quite special. It is just yeah. it's a different process. And it really is a different process. Mm. And I think that's what we have um kind of realized now is that we just have to there has to be a different approach in order to make yeah this work achievable and, and that's what's exciting about it and i and i guess what we're all aiming for is that this will then become the more regular way of, of working of designing that we will we will become more sustainable yeah not even just for opera but kind of just the arts and i mean all of us every all eight billion people on the planet yeah. need to be more sustainable but I mean, I can remember having, actually coming back after the pandemic, um, I, so I, I worked, I half worked on a show in 2020 and then it got put in a box yeah. and then we then brought it out of the box again in 2022 and there had been this fantastic kind of shift in thinking. So when we returned to it in 2022, there was suddenly in production meetings, uh, there was suddenly more chat about can we use recycled materials? There were, we were going to have snow on stage and traditionally theatre snow is made of plastic. Yeah. It cannot be recycled. Yeah. It's horrible. If you breathe it in, it's horrible. It's really bad for the environment. Um, and uh, my director was adamant, and it's such a small thing, but it's that whole thing, like lots of small things do add up exactly, to the big yeah. thing. He was adamant we would not be using plastic snow. So I really think people have really started to kind of wake up to this idea and I think yeah. it's great that one of our national companies is really taking on this mantle um I wish you, I wish all of you the best for it it sounds like an amazing season and you'll all learn lots I'm sure yeah exactly and I think it's I mean we've it's it's quite a big a big um milestone to achieve for us the first yeah absolutely you know rather we've done productions in the past which have had a sustainable focus and you know as, as kind of test test grounds for this yeah but to now be doing a, an entire season of a three new season. shows yeah it's it is it's really quite a, an achievement to be working in this way and to um make three new shows out of you know recycled and secondhand and sustainable yeah. materials a final fun some fun questions to end with now that we've <laughs> talked about saving the world yeah. <laughs> sustainable design so a final three quick fire questions. What is your favourite thing that you've designed or that you've been a part of? And it doesn't have to be opera; it can be anything. Um. So, I'm going to answer both bits of that question. My fa- <laughs> the favourite thing that I've designed personally is uh, the Seven Deadly Sins, which was actually a <gasps> lockdown project, and it well, it was a pandemic project in the way that it w- originally was intended to be seen by an audience and unfortunately it didn't get to be because by the time it was going to open, we did go back into lockdown. So it became a digital um, streamed production from Leeds Playhouse. And that was, it, it, it worked so well on film that I'm, for me personally, mm. I just was so satisfied with the, with the film version of it that it really cemented that as a, as a favorite design project that I've personally done. But the second bit, the thing (laughs) that I am most happy to have been involved with was the season that we met on of the six little greats. Yes. The Um, six little greats. So it was six one act operas performed two a night in various different configurations. Again, it was a crazy project. It was incredibly fun and very satisfying for, 
everyone involved, I think. Yes, yeah, and it felt like a true kind of mix of old guard and new guard, you know. Um, Annabelle Arden directed too, and she's a you know proper kind of stalwart of the op- of the opera industry. And then uh, Carolina, yeah, uh, directed um, John Savorn and then Matthew Aberhart, and then lovely Charlie Edwards who designed. Yes. Did he design all six? Yeah, so he designed <laughs> um, also, all also six. Also directed one. <laughs> um, so Set and Lighting designed all six, and then he had myself yeah. as associate set designer and Ben Pickersgill as associate lighting designer. Of course. And then he he also uh, directed one. So it was just crazy, and it was brilliant. It was nuts, <laughs> wasn't it? There was definitely, because I was on three of the six as assistant director with three different directors, but all of all of them were lovely and all the pieces were fantastic. All rehearsing at the same time. <laughs> there was one week where I was in tech for two, but also middle of studio rehearsals for the other <laughs> one and was literally going, doing three operas a day, um, wearing many hats. And at the end of that week, and it was only for one week actually where I was doing three, literally doing three at once. And I got back to my digs on the Friday night just had a little cry. <laughs> Not about nothing bad had happened. Just but such I'm a satisfying like, so week. Three operas, three operas a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So no, at that end, that you're right. That season, that season was very special. Um, lovely. And then, what is your favourite thing that you've seen? Design that you've seen, and again, it doesn't have to be opera. This one isn't an opera one, and it is a very recent C. Um, in that, mm. uh, at the beginning of. March, I went away and had was very fortunate to see um, a Cirque du Soleil production, uh, which was uh, the Beatles' Love um, oh, production. Wow. So it was you know contemporary circus in the round in Las Vegas. It it was absolutely <laughs> like the use of projection and uh, storytelling uh, through props and puppetry and movement and sound and light and projection and people and it was just absolutely spectacular and it was unlike nothing I've seen before and I think that's why although yes like I say it's a recent watch but I think it will it will stand out in my mind Mm. for a long long time because it was just so so different to anything else I'd seen and I can't it's very difficult to describe as a to describe, Visually. yeah, but sometimes um, I think some designs, some of the best designs are like that. Yeah. You, just, like, you just had to be there, you just had to experience it. I think what stood out about it is that it just utilised, uh, so the substage, which is the area below the stage, it utilised that mm. um, so much, which is something that, you know, theatres normally under the stage is quite full of you dressing rooms and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yes. um, so yeah. it was, yeah, it was spectacular to see the kind of, the opposite side of the stage used to what normally is. Do you think it will leave Vegas or do you think it's it's wedded to Vegas? I don't know. It's been on since 2006, so it's having a good run. So oh, it's, okay. not, it's not kind of brand new. <laughs> so it's probably it's just I've, I've only had chance to see it now. To to, we just all need to go to Vegas yeah, then. I've just waited 15 it. years or however, however long it is to see it. <laughs> and then finally, um, do you have kind of bucket list? I know you've, you're, not, you're now doing a slightly different part of the design process, but I, I'm sure there's still... Oh, design yeah. design in you um if you know if you if a producer rang you up and said george we have to have you pick your piece any piece what would what would your dream piece to design be um the flying dutchman that's, <gasps> okay that's the one piece Why? i always wanted <laughs> to get my hands on and um, i think because it's 
for me, it perfectly sums up what I said at the beginning about my love of opera, mm. where the music just does all of the storytelling. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, the libretto helps, of course. Yeah, but, but no, the, mu- no, the but music, the music just <laughs> says absolutely everything it needs to say about that entire story, mm. and it creates it creates everything that I love in terms of space. You know, I listen to it and I can see the space that it requires. I can see and feel the atmosphere that it requires from a lighting and um, point of view. So without a doubt, that's that's always been my... You'll be flying yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sure yeah. at some point, <laughs> you know, the planets will align and you'll get to you'll get to design them. George, thank you so much for this interview. It's been absolutely um, fascinating hearing more about the design process. Um, and I best of luck for the optimal season. Thank you very much. Lovely to chat to you. After 99 years of incredible music making, the BBC announced it is axing the BBC singers in June, mere months before their 100th birthday. This legendary choir has produced so many talented musicians over the years and was a starting ground for esteemed UK opera folk such as Brindy Sherratt, among others. There is a petition that I strongly urge everyone to sign, and several letters have been distributed, signed by pretty much every name in classical music today. All the past winners of BBC Young Musician of the Year have written a joint letter, as well as there's been an incredible call to arms, signed by 700 composers, including the legendary John Adams of Dr Atomic fame. On the back of the Arts Council England cuts that were announced in the autumn, It's feeling more and more like classical music in this country is incredibly vulnerable and that no job is particularly safe. Michael, should we all be moving to Germany? Is that the answer? (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's a really tough time. I must admit, I've found it really, really difficult. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm very lucky. I'm sitting here and I've got my Canadian passport to the right of me here, being a dual citizen. (laughs) Um, But I sometimes joke about this to friends, but... No, we've got to stay and, you know, fight the good fights. And um, first of all, it's worth, you know, worth saying in terms of BBC singers, I think it's an awful thing to happen. I Mm. think it's, um, you know, at this point as well. And also there's something for me that doesn't feel quite right about cutting them just before the proms, just before, you know, on their hundredth anniversary. There's just a lot of things that feel quite calculated. And some of the letters that have come out, what's really angered me is how, um, you know, there's been some letters around the process of this happening feels Mm -hmm. very, very dodgy and unprofessional and really unfair on those people who, you know, it's their jobs, their full-time jobs. And people in our industry, you know, are freelance for reasons, but also take on full-time employment for reasons as well, because they need that security and those that is their work. Um, but, you know, regardless of that as well, there's this, fact, this fantastic organisation and the other orchestras will suffer as well. Um, so it feels like cultural vandalism, that word has been bandied mm. around a lot, and it really, really is that. But again, it goes back to the fact that I think classical music feels like an easy attack for those at the top. Mm. Um, you know, it does take time to engage in classical music and we need resources, we need support and we need more projects in schools and we need more funding there to do it in order to build an audience and to build engagement as well. Um, but that doesn't mean you could just cut a whole choir. Well, BBC are doing it, but yeah, I'm quite, I'm not very articulate about this because I'm still quite mad, but yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, and it's, it's one of these things where to articulate. <laughs> it does seem Sorry, it does seem to be still very much developing, and kind of definitely last week it felt that kind of almost with each day something else came to light or someone else of very high profile was calling out against it. And it, it unfortunately it did happen, well not unfortunately, but interestingly, it happened in the same week that Gary Lineker was uh, temporarily removed from his job and then came back to it. And someone made someone made the comparison that actually if you can get all that noise um for football and and those and that is valid you know people people love match of the day and people love him and he's an incredible pundit and actually the fact that he was asked to maybe not be in his job for a little bit and then return to it you know the the way that the arts in this country doesn't get the same coverage and i feel that they i'm worried we are in our, in our echo chamber fighting for the bbc singers and it's not truly reaching the wider uk world yeah i think the echo chamber comment is really um really interesting there because like Michael said about the classical music industry being an easy target I'm kind of trying to look at it from the outside perspective from someone who might have been you know keyboard warrioring their way through the the Gary Lineker um uh, debacle you know from their perspective as somebody that you know it, let's say it's somebody that doesn't engage with classical music at all from their perspective, all that's happened is that the BBC have axed a group of 16 singers mm. from, a, from a thing that they don't understand. And the people that are getting annoyed about it are also people that do the same thing that they are also not interested in. You know, and so this is that's that's the echo chamber element of it. Right. And it's um, when you were talking about obviously the, the sports versus arts debate is a tailor's oldest time but mm. the reason it's a tailor's oldest time is because we all came through an education system where you know our schools were kind of had you know had huge new sports buildings being built every five years and we were all going to music classes in a rundown shack at the end of the field like that is how it has been in this country for a while mm. um because with my other hat on kind of in the, the the therapeutic industry, it's a similar thing. It's the qualitative versus quantitative debate. If you can't put numbers to something, it's very easy to just get rid of it. It's very easy to go, mm. oh, there's no value here because I can't look at a spreadsheet that tells me it's valuable. Mm -hmm. People can look at spreadsheets and say that sports is valuable maybe because you know the impact it has on health and obesity, child obesity. And you know it, it, these are kind of easier metrics to grab hold of, right? we don't have anything as tangible in the music industry and increasingly with the cultural vandalism that kind of the term that that michael was talking about there which yes it's being banded around a lot but for good reason this is mm. this is a, a sustained and again putting my cynical hat on calculated attack on on an industry which doesn't mean a lot of to a lot of people who have the decision making capability and so you just kind of, you drip feed away, you, drip, you, you you get rid of the thing that you can't touch, you get rid of the thing that you can't go, well, it doesn't really have any tangible benefits, so we'll just get rid of that because no one's really going to make any fuss about it. And, and meanwhile, we're here going, but, but there isn't a spreadsheet, but look at all this amazing stuff. It does, mm. it's, but it's all qualitative. And for people who are numbers driven, qualitative data is not people don't know how to interpret qualitative data uh in, in the world at large and I feel like that that 
does make the music industry come a cropper in, in battles such as this. And then continuing on that theme, Lorna, you and I have talked before um, about loving this industry, even when it necessarily doesn't love you back and the need to sometimes yeah, yeah. do other things, either for financial reasons or even just mental health ones, equally as important. Um, this idea of walk as artists of walking away either forever or just for a pause is still seen as a big risk but actually is it sometimes a smart option should we all be utilizing our plan b or should we all be holding on i feel i'm at the moment i'm at a, a point of change where where i am in my career i feel if i hold on for a few more years <laughs> something it's, it's I feel the next step is there and I can sort of see what it is but also if I need to if I need to back away and I always joke slash not really joke that plan b is to become an accountant because I have a maths a level so I might as well use it <laughs> but this idea of maybe some people are just artists in their 20s and 30s and then they find they have to do again either financial or for other reasons they have to do something else um, or even just to take a break for a moment. Um, I know that you've you've taken a little break at the moment, but not necessarily forever. Or is that me putting words in your mouth? Um, I think um, it's very personally speaking. I think it's very important to always keep checking in with either whether you're still in the industry or whether you have stepped away from it about the decisions that you're making and whether it's still making you happy. So. We all know here and and plenty of people listening know that this is not, I wrote a piece just for um, my old music centre, my old university music centre the other day about a similar thing because they too are fighting for their existence, mm. you know, it's just such a common theme, right? And um, this is not an industry that you go into for... <sighs> for the money, for the kudos, for the whatever. Mm. You go into it because you're called to go into it and you know what a difference music, the arts make to individuals, to, to communities, to the country, to the world. You know, we know that, that this is preaching to the choir, but it is, the, the, the thing that I came back to when I was writing this piece for my old music centre was that, I think a colleague of mine once said, or maybe they were quoting somebody else, but this this idea that it is not an industry you stay in if there is literally anything else you want or feel <laughs> that you are able to do. Yeah, like, yeah. people that are yes, in I've this heard industry, that before. Are, you know, like, yeah. and I think for consideration about plan B, for my own, all I can really speak to is my own experience. As soon as there was a plan B for me, and, and I mean, in my life, there's been plan Bs, plan Cs, plan Ds, plan Es, whatever, you know, and, and it changes. You keep checking in to see whether it's still something that's making you happy. And mm. for me, even when I started back in this industry, back in um, 2007, I was really conscious at the time that if it ever felt like a job, like a chore, that it I, I didn't want to be doing it anymore. Um, full time certainly because that's not for me that's not respecting the industry it it mm. can my personal approach was that it is something I felt viscerally called to do and um if it ever just became a drudge I felt that sticking with it in that context would be um hugely disrespectful to the craft 
and mm. to the industry and to my previous um, enjoyment of it. So mm. for me, yeah, it became a bit of a slog at one point and somebody kind of made an offhand comment about what else I might do. And I found myself kind of going down this rabbit hole of thinking, well, actually, I've always kind of been interested in people and anthropology and sociology. And maybe actually I want to look into psychology as, as a retraining option. And so that's kind of the path that I am now on. But it has been in the last um, few months or so, I've I've been uh, enjoying getting back to performing and mm. it's given me a fresh enjoyment being able to do it on my own terms again. Mm. Um, and also without the pressure of it being my primary source of income, to put it bluntly. Yes. So kind of, <laughs> um, you know, that, that does add a, a different element to it for sure. Um, I fell down a bit of a rabbit, rabbit hole there, sorry. Mm. But yeah, I think it's a case of, always checking in with whether it's still you mentioned mental health and I think it's as an industry it can be quite difficult to step away from it because we are constantly bombarded with how fortunate we are to be part of it Mm. and whilst that is of course true because what a joy it is to be able to be creating art um sometimes it can lead people to feel uncomfortable about leaving it like they are somehow looking Mm. a gift horse in the mouth and I think that might be the conversation that that people need to be having about keeping that um, as honest as possible and especially you know the last where are we now it's 2023 it's been three years almost the day since everything changed and to be able to be making work again I think everyone is still so overjoyed and definitely kind of that first kind of flurry back which which for me happened in 2021 I don't know about anyone else you know I took pay cuts I signed contracts that said this is what you would normally be getting but because of everything I was like gladly gladly and we're still sort of there two years later I'm like I cannot I don't know if I can sustain this um but also on the flip side I feel I am my most complete self for want of a better word in a rehearsal room that is where I am the happiest that is where I thrive and I know that about myself because I've tried the office jobs and I've tried the outside jobs and I do enjoy them I do get a lot out of them but for me it's being in a rehearsal room is is my place and I and I know that Michael any thoughts it's got sorry it's got very deep <laughs> it has I, I brought the psychology <laughs> to the table <laughs> No, I have so many thoughts. And actually, it's I was having this conversation with a very dear friend of mine who I studied with at university who now lives in Chile last night about how I'm in that this weird point of going, where am I at? Doing loads of exciting projects, loads of great projects this year, but it is that it's that burnout thing, mm-hmm. which I get quite a lot. And I've actually learned I've learned coping mechanisms as well. But I think this to bring it back to kind of thinking about the BBC singers and yeah. kind of um, full time orchestral and uh, opera choruses and people who are on on staff full time or on a kind of good contract. There is this habit in this uh, in the wider world. I think again having this conversation last night with a different group of friends after <laughs> choir rehearsal, um, but going talking about fees, talking about wages and going, because it's seen, because we have such great thriving community music making, amateur music making in this country as well. I think there's sometimes that relationship whilst, you know, the standards of living in this country have got worse, pay has been stagnated and in real terms has gone down. And I think there is this 
you know, sometimes this feeling of, well, you get to do something you love. And yeah, we do. It's really, really good. But it is also a job that we have trained mm. for and that, yes, there's some very good non-professionals and communities. And but that's that is a different thing. And sometimes they cross over and sometimes we make music in our spare time for fun. And that's OK. But there is also the fact that the more we dismantle these big organizations and say, oh, everyone can just be freelance. That's when it gets into this kind of late capitalist kind of, well, who will do it for the least amount? Who can do that? And yes, we sometimes make those choices because it makes us happy. But then also that feeds into the question around who can do it. We're not going to see a diverse workforce if people can do it for less because they've got support elsewhere or savings or whatever. Not everyone's in that situation. So it's this vicious kind of goodness really really cynical and really really negative but it can be that kind of you know swelling to the bottom of going the more we you know that we kind of have to do for less the more it's going to really impact us and our sector and who gets to be involved in that so yeah I could go on for ages but um (laughs) something you were um mentioning earlier Michael about not being apologetic for for what we do Mm. really kind of um um, it kind of triggered something in me and, and then what you were just talking about this kind of lack of diversity available availability in the workforce if it's just a race to the bottom if it's just an, a, a downwards auction you know who can we get to to do this performance for the least amount of money and those kind of conversations because that is essentially what we're looking at there is this kind of you know as performers as as um as artists we are part of a national trend of can you do more with less Mm. and um it's it makes me so yeah it makes me so angry because what it does is it 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 separates the people that have that external support or looking through the the nominees and the people that won these awards you know next to every individual is supported by you know um here because of a scholarship from you know and it's all kind of private business philanthropists you know that kind of thing and are we I don't know a question for future discussion but are we perhaps our worst enemies because we continually agree to do more for less you know at what point do we just say no I am worth this amount of money pay it Mm. or don't get me um I do that I'm I'm quite Good. strict about Good. this now, yeah, and especially big organizations. And sometimes I will say, okay, I will do it for that, but that's below. And that's sometimes that's actually not for me. Now I'm in, I'm really lucky. I'm in a position where you know work comes in and everything feels balanced for me post pandemic, which is great. But I know there's going to be someone who is perhaps five years behind where I am or recent graduate who will really want that work and it's setting that status quo and fighting for it yes. and going this is what the MU say this is what the ISM say they say slightly different things but here's what's being said um this is what it is and then telling my colleagues that I'm doing that so they do the same thing um yeah. we've yeah. got to do that we've got to do that otherwise you know yeah it's 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 for our own well-being as well and the and the future well-being of our industry so one slightly heavier topic and then we'll get into the slightly lighter side of podcast. <laughs> so there's been a there's been a, um, an ENO update. Uh, Stuart Murphy uh, gave an exclusive interview to the stage, uh, which I encourage everyone to read. It's absolutely fascinating. And he announced that they 
the ENO and the Arts Council are in talks for a hybrid form of working, with the Coliseum still being where he describes they'll do their main proscenium opera whatever, and their big opera, whatever that is, um, but also establishing a base outside of London for other work. And he, uh, Murphy said that he's currently in talks with, a, with about 10 areas outside of London, including Hull, Newcastle, Birmingham, Nottingham, my hometown, East Croydon, uh, Truro and Manchester about establishing a base there outside the capital. This, he said, would see ENO present a mix of large-scale opera alongside work in more unusual settings, as well as in partnership with organisations and companies that are not traditionally focused on opera. Um, I know OperaCast has talked at length about what's going on at ENO, but this this feels like progress um, to me. Murphy said it, and he Murphy said that it feels like a genuine partnership with Arts Council. Whether that's him putting a brave face on. Or whether that is what he actually believes, we you know there's there's a nuance there, um, but I do feel that if Arts Council go with what he's suggesting, there's there's life in ENO yet, which is obviously wonderful. Any any thoughts on this? Many as always. <laughs> um, I think it's the it was really shocking, you know, when it was when I was looking through. Um, I worked for an organisation that applied for MPO for the first time and we didn't get it. So I was trawling the data on that day. And it was really shocking to see ENO cuts entirely at that point, which I think was a, I know it was a perceived as a bold decision. And a lot of people outside of opera perhaps thought it was a good decision. I think it was a wrong choice, obviously. And it's a shame we've had to get, we've had to, this has had to happen to get to this point which could, it feels like it could have quite easily happened. That conversation exactly. could exactly. have happened Without in advance. Without this horrible six months. And again, it goes back to the fact, like, again, when when Manchester was churned out as a potential, kind of, again, this kind of um, not having conversations and all these kind of go, oh, Manchester, we'll go to Manchester. And then Andy Vernon was like, what? Um, and no one here, <laughs> no one here in this city was like, what? Where would you put it? <laughs> the um, factory is a brilliant space, but it's not suitable for opera. It's for amplified work, you know. And but this feels really positive. And I think ENO again, they do. I mean, ENO is one of my favourite companies in terms of what they do, especially their new work. Um, but they do so much fantastic stuff. Um, they did so much great stuff during the pandemic. They do so much great learning and participation. I yeah. think it's a really dynamic and agile company that if we can balance, get those great shows in, in the Coliseum and then get more site-specific community-led mm. work, community operas, you know, commission a community opera in Truro, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Um, and something that I think they have the knowledge and skill set and creativity to do better than anyone else. Um, and that fits, let's create strategy. So I'm really optimistic about this. I just hope there's proper conversations about the opera ecosystem and there's not duplication and we're really being really considerate about where this goes mm -hmm. and proper embedded audience engagement and participation, which I know ENO historically have been very good at in their London communities, their East London communities, um, with Opera Squad and all those brilliant projects, uh, but they can do it. I just hope that Arts Council also understands where it needs to go. It's not duplicating opera up close or English touring opera, or exactly. it has to be a proper ecosystem. Yeah. And that they're taking the, um, they're taking everything ENO is bringing to the partnership and let's, let's, you know, run with that and hope that that is actually the case. Um, and that they are equal partners in this. And it's not just, you know, Arts Council um, plowing on 
making um, arguably ill-informed decisions mm. um, as, as as this project um, progresses. But it's it sounds amazing. Yeah, I, I think it's um, um the the possibility of bringing ENO, you know much more front and center across the country I mean gosh isn't that amazing wouldn't that be wonderful I think that would be mm. that would be really quite something um I've long said that I think Gen Z are going to be the saviors of us all socially and I wonder whether ENO <laughs> is going to be the uh, the the savior of opera nationally although for the same reason as um uh you know, Jen said being the savior of us all, it's a huge pressure to put on their shoulders. So we all need yeah. to be very mindful of that. <laughs> so on um to end our news items on a lovely light note, on Friday the 17th of March, uh Teatro Real in Madrid presented the first ever opera live in the metaverse. It was a production of Barry Kosky's uh production of The Nose. Uh, seen at Covent Garden in 2016, which um, if you haven't seen it, it features the best tap dance I've ever seen in an opera. And the tap dance you can watch on YouTube, it's about 20 dancing noses and one tiny nose. There's a child, like a 10 year old child inside the nose. It is incredible. I can't tell you anything else about the opera. <laughs> I am I writing that down. That made me cry with laughter. <laughs> so we always talk about trying to make opera more accessible. And I guess putting it into the metaverse is one way of doing it. Are we looking at the future here? I mean, why not? Uh, <laughs> you know, we'll consider most things, I think, won't we, at this point? Uh, um, I think it's fun. I think it's um, uh, it, it has the potential to reach a lot more people. And I, I, in most ways, I don't think that can be a bad thing. Yeah, it does feel like a natural progression of we, a lot of stuff went online during the pandemic and also post-pandemic, post which is, again, absolutely wonderful. I was able to watch Opera North Twidalia, which they filmed at Lee's Town Hall, you know, from my from my flat in London. Um, I think I was in my pyjamas. <laughs> I think I watched it one evening <laughs> after a bath. Um, and, you know, that's that's the sort of thing that is it's that does feel I think I think I paid all of maybe five pounds for it it was truly it felt like a proper accessibility and then this idea I mean I know almost literally nothing about the metaverse but I think this idea that you can actually still experience the opera house experience um and I think you could like sit in a seat and 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 view it that way um it does feel it I mean it's 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 fascinating I wonder whether they Teatro Real will We'll have a repeater if it's just a one-off. Michael, do you have any any thoughts? I think it sounds great. I think any experimentation with form is really, really mm. important um, constantly. And the way we consume uh, opera and engage with opera. Um, I don't know much about the metaverse. We're talking VR kind of reality. Yeah. Is that right? Great. Yeah. My, um, my partner <laughs> made me play a VR game uh, the other day. And I walked into a wall and bumped <clears throat> my nose. Um, but it was really Beautiful. interesting. It was great. I loved it. But it's the thing about um, that immersive thing. Mm. Uh, immersive immersiveness is really exciting. Uh, accessibility, which you touched on, Emma, like this is mm. really inclusive. I talked to my um, friends who can't access uh, or feel uh, uncomfortable in theatre spaces. You know, those spaces can be quite overwhelming or not accessible in different ways physically mm. in terms of the environment. So this uh approach obviously increases accessibility to a form um that is much loved and cherished i think the big question is how would you get audio as great as possible because the mm. liveness 
and good audio can be fantastic but how do we get that fantastic kind of sensation that we get that's my thing about live opera like feeling mm. those voices vibrate me as a human like how do we do that but um I'm sh I'm not an expert there I'm sure there's ways of doing that and um <laughs> I've got now got inspiration watch out for my next VR opera my first VR <laughs> opera fantastic just to make sure you're not facing a wall yes this time <laughs> this time now, it wouldn't be OperaCast without a hidden gem. And this month, uh, Michael has been tasked with shining a light on a lesser known piece of work. Uh, Michael, what gem have you brought for us today? So I was thinking a lot about this and um, kind of all the work that I do. And obviously I do a lot of work with, uh, see a lot of contemporary work. And I thought I'd bring something to the table there. Um, I've been really lucky to be involved in mahogany operas, snappy operas projects. Yeah which are brilliant. Um, there are short operas, snappy operas that young people, classrooms, classroom groups and schools across the country, across the United Kingdom, learn in three sessions and then perform to their family and friends, um, written by some of the kind of greatest composers of the day. And there are so many good ones um, as part of that series. Uh, but I'm going to shout, do a shout out to um, Carrie Andrews' Fox Pop, which is a fantastic short 10 minute opera as part of the snappy operas series. Um, about uh, cats and dogs who are kind of uh, in a gang warfare with each other and then these strange <laughs> foxes appear who speak a language I don't understand which in the opera is beatboxing this beatbox language um, and it, it stems from Kerry's uh, kind of being really into and inspired by urban foxes around her local area um, and it's just a brilliant example of a how to engage young people as performers, engage young people as audiences and using the operatic form, um, you know, using the voice and what you can do with the voice to storytell. And it's a really, really beautiful work. The whole Staffy Operas, all of them are fantastic. But that one in particular just kind of sticks out to me as a really strong opera for young people and made with young people. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. And finally, I'm so excited. It also wouldn't I be OperaCast. So <laughs> it also wouldn't be OperaCast without a quiz. Oh uh, Lorna and Michael, I am pleased to announce that you are the first ever players of Opera Clues. And then I've written here, theme tune pending. The game is very simple. I will each give you clues to five operas. So it's five, five operas each, and we'll take it in turns. And you can choose before I ask each time, if you would like a one-word clue, a two-word clue, or a three-word clue. So we're looking oh, for I'm titles of operas. Okay. Right. Um, if you correctly guess from a one-word clue, where's my pen, you get three points. <laughs> if you um, get a correct answer to a two-word clue, that's worth two points. And a correct answer to a three-word clue gets you one point. So it's whether you gamble for, I think you can get it in one and get more points, or if you wanna play it safer, um, and at least have a chance. Yeah, D does that make sense? Yes. Uh -huh. Can so, I add? Can I kind of go for like the difficult one and then go down the levels, or do I have to just choose right? It, it, no, so with each clue, you can you, before I ask before I ask it, you can say this time round, I'd like a a one or a two or a three. You can change. Cool. You've got five goes. You could do five. You can't do five different things, but you've got options. Okay, um, okay. Now then, because I'm not completely heartless, the structure for every clue is the same. So your first word is always the composer. The second word is the year of the premiere. And the third <laughs> word <laughs> and the third word is a character that appears in the opera. So for example, 
and this isn't on the list guys otherwise i'd just be giving you a free answer um <laughs> a three word clue a three word clue could be mozart 1786 susanna and that would be uh oh, figaro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly um so basically if you opt for a one word clue all you'll ever get is the composer two word clue is composer in year three word clue is composer year character does that make sense yeah yes yes okay um i've got two sets of clues here lorna would you like set a or set b set b please Lovely. i'm writing this down so it's fair and i can show you after <laughs> lovely so michael we will start with you for your first clue would you like a one word a two word or a three word clue I'm going to go for a two-word clue. A two-word clue, okay. So we've got Mozart and 1791. That would have been one of his last, wouldn't it? Uh, 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 Cosi Fantuti. <laughs> I'm afraid it's not Cosi Fantuti. Lorna, what do you think it is? <laughs> is it the magic flute? No, because that is Double also if you'd heard, if you'd gone for a three word clue, you would have heard Sevilla and uh, she is in Clemenza mm, Of course. Mm, okay. <laughs> Damn it. Fine. Okay. Lorna, are you ready for your first one? Yeah. What would you like? One, I two, or three? I'm trying to think how many, in how many occasions the year is going to help me, but I, I yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go two. Okay. So it, you get yeah. you get a you get a composer and a yeah. year. So yeah, Sul Sullivan, eighteen seventy nine. I mean, goodness me, that year doesn't help me at all. Um, well, let's just go the Pirates of Penzance. Well done! It was yeah. 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 Um, your character your character would have been Ruth. <laughs> I, that would not have helped me. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Are we get? Are we? Are we getting it? We're we getting into the. Yeah, I'm loving it. I'm loving one? it. Okay. That's so, you're winning. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, would you like one, two, or three? Oh, let's go with three. Go on. Okay, so you've got Monteverdi, sixteen forty-three, and Seneca. Mm, I'm so bad with Monteverdi. Uh, 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 uh. Oh, my mind's gone totally blank. Everyone at home, anyone who's going to employ me in the future, don't judge me. <laughs> oh, I'm getting my composers mixed up now. Popea? Well done, it's Popea! Yes, yeah. yeah. I'm going to play Popea. <laughs> Yay! Yes. Lovely. Okay. Lorna, back to you. What would you like, one, two, or three? Um, two, please. Okay, you've got Verdi and 1893. Again, the year, yeah, um, 1893. Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, Tra no, Traviata. No, it's false stuff. Uh, so okay. your third, your third clue would have been Mistress Quickly. Okay, oh, yeah, I would have got that. Yeah, uh, Michael, one, two, or three. I'm going go with two. Okay, Britain, 1945. Uh, Peter Grimes. Yay! 
Yes. Two Costa Ricas. So, yeah, that, that's a good question for me, that one. <laughs> uh, Lorna, one, two, or three? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play it separate the three, three flu, please. Okay, so we've got Puccini, 1910, Jack Rance, or Rance. Oh, um, um, Girl of the Golden West, Manchula del West. Ooh, very good. So we've had three clues each, and I can confirm you have three points each. So it's a tie. Yes. Uh, Michael, back to you. One, two, or three? Two. Two. Rossini, 1817. I see William Tell. Chanarentula. Your your character would have been Clorinda. That wouldn't have helped me, but... (laughs) Uh, Lorna, one, two, or three? Um, Three, please. Puts, I think I'm saying that right, Puts, 2011. And Lieutenant Gordon. Uh, absolutely nothing. This have been a good clue for Michael. Michael's much more up on his contemporary stuff than I am. I think you've seen this. I have. I think so. That's Hi. cheating. That's cheating. Sorry, that is cheating. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> if you get it, I'll give you half a point because I've massively helped there. I've seen it. Well, I don't okay, know. No, I, I, I. I Oh, okay. Uh, no, I, I don't know. Oh, Michael's got his hand up. Is it oh, not yeah, the Silent Night? It's Silent Night, yes. Oh, I have seen that. It was very I good. we went together. I really we went yeah. together. <laughs> <laughs> we might have done. Sorry. Friend, I'm sorry, Lorna, that's not, that's, that's zero points. So, team, we are still tied with one question left each. Michael, what would you like? One, two, or three? Oh, let's go with... Let's go with two. Okay. So you've got Wagner okay. and 18, 1868. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. 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 I'm going to do this. No, not. Oh, is it the ring? Is it one in the ring or not? I'm going to Flying Dutchman. Or was that too early? It's too early. It's Meistersinger. It's in the middle okay. of the ring. I was really mean. Oh, <laughs> fine. Um, and fine. you're... Because by this point, I thought if no one had got any points, you'd be asking for three clues. So I made them easy. <laughs> I mean, you're so easy. Um, <laughs> um, so your character would have been Hans, Hans Sachs. Yeah. Okay, so Michael, you end with a very respectable three. Well done. Lorna, last one. I've got to play one, two, it as easy as possible then. So three, three one, clues, two, or three. For the win. Okay. Beethoven. Okay. Well. <laughs> 1805, Giacchino. That's that's um Fidelio, right? Well done. One point uh, that was so a very Lord, easy one to finish with. I told you they were getting easier as they went on. Sorry, Lorna, well done. Lorna, inaugural winner of Opera Clues. Uh Yay. and Michael on three. Thank you so much. So that's all all that's left is for me to say a massive thank you to my guests, Michael Betteridge. Thank you, Michael. Thank you ever so much. Um and um and also a massive thank you to Lorna James. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a, a joy tonight. And a massive thank you to David Ward for the chance to guest edit this edition of Opera Cast. And we'll see you all next time. Bye.